What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark Devoe. And thank you to all of our lovely patrons and Academy members who make this podcast happen. We're so grateful to all of you. And if you would like to join the Academy, we have doors open right now for the new the new term, which starts at the beginning of September. So if you'd like to pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Um, and pop in your application. You can have Mark and I as your mentors. You can access over 30 amazing courses, a roadmap taking you through the real complete process of writing your book. And join, I think, Mark, completely unbiasedly, probably one of the best writing communities. No and question. a place to meet new friends. No question, really. Yeah, no They're question, absolutely. really. Honestly, to everyone in the Academy, you're absolutely awesome people. We don't know. We love them. We don't know, we, we don't know how it is, but every single one of members of the Academy are just brilliant. So if you want to be a part of that really positive energy, imagine, imagine a group of people. It's like, it's like the podcast audience on steroids, Mark, isn't it? They just want you to win. They just want each other everyone. to win. It's, it's great. It's, it's really, really brilliant. Good. So come and join us folks. This is going to be a life changing experience for you. And you know what? Most importantly, it'll give you that kick up the butt, that accountability <laughs> that every writer needs. And, and to be honest, every writer lacks, don't they, Mark? When, when you don't have a publisher, an agent telling you you've got to deliver your, you need something like this community where we can help you set your deadlines and the whole thing counts. Just want to make it clear, there is no but, actual butt yeah, kicking. There is We're no, talking metaphorical. It's we don't take virtual. you into a room with a big boot <laughs> and kick you up the bum. That doesn't no. happen. I mean, if you want it, I'm sure it could be arranged. <laughs> Um, but uh, I, we're just not into that sort of thing. So no, absolutely yeah. not. No, but do 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 um, come along to the website. Look at some of the testimonials of some of the academy members. Absolutely fantastic. Anyway, Mister Stay. Um, oh, we we've had a mental week, haven't we? Um, but you, th- 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 there's certain author keeps cropping up. It seems to be in our universe right now on all different levels, and people might know of him. But so, tell tell us about what you discovered this week. I'm now. I I should have seen this coming because I've known this book is coming because I'm a fan of the author. I just never put two and two together like an idiot. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to share screen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do. Um, this is this is live typing on the internet with Woo-hoo. Mark's day. So I, I'll, uh, I'll give people a kind of a running commentary if you're listening to this on the podcast. So Mark's just gone to uh, Amazon, Amazon.co.uk, and he's okay. about, and he's typing in. I'm typing in the words Holly King, okay? Holly King. The Holly King is my new book that's coming out in September. It's the fourth of the Witches of Woodville book. So if I type in Holly King and just tap enter, guess what comes up first? <laughs> <laughs> not not the Holly King by Mark Stay, but Holly, 
by Stephen King comes up <laughs> as the top search result. And I, I've, I've known this book is coming and I, I've spoken to, oh, there's a new Stephen King. Oh, that's great. Uh, this, what's it called? Holly. Oh, right. Because it's about a character that, that was, I think, started in Mr. Mercedes and has been in a couple of other books. And now she's got her own book. Uh, her own book. And it's like, actually, it's not one of his horror books. It's like a thriller. Um, so anyway... He's winning the SEO war. (laughs) (laughs) How could that happen? But he's like, this is brilliant though. Have you, okay, I want you to do a quick test. Go up to the top of the page. Mm -hmm. Type in King Holly. So the other way around. Uh See what comes up. Okay. King Holly. There you go. So anyone searching for Stephen King book, Stephen King's book is going to see your book second. Well, this is it. I, I sort of put a thing in the BXP team and said, is this a bad thing or a good thing? And everyone's this like, this, this is a great thing because <laughs> everyone's going to you see get, your book. You might start selling so, hundreds of thousands of copies. And um, well, here's well Mark, well, who knows? You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. if I mean, only you'd you know. call yourself Stephen Mark or Mark Stephen or something like that, you'd be at the complete integration then, wouldn't you? I mean, I may have started some because everyone in the VXP group is going, right, what's getting published when my book's coming out? What do, you know what do what I change the title to? That, that's completely <laughs> legitimate. Well, I know, wish it was that clever. <laughs> but, you know, it's, I mean, this is a whole new level of also boughts. It's like first it is, searched, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Because how many people search for something and end off? I mean, you know what it's like? You go on Amazon to find one thing and you end up, you know, you go on Amazon to buy a book and you end up buying like a washing machine or something i mean it, it, there's a whole world of, oh brilliant i love it so uh, yeah, so yeah. can you pre-order the so presumably you can pre-order the book now can you is that is or is it just yes you can a, yeah okay. yeah yeah pre-order both of them i mean uh, this is the other thing his is out the 5th of september mine's out the 14th so we're, huh. we're coming out within a fortnight of each other as well so it's, it's like you've got of, a hive you know, mind going well, there's, there's yeah. and, and this isn't the only Stephen King thing that's happening. Uh, they'll just listen to the podcast next couple of weeks. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to make any major promises stuff, but there's some fun stuff that comes up about Mr. King. And, uh, and weirdly enough, like completely independently, all of this, the coaching that I did on Monday for the, uh, the life coaching for writers in the, in the bestseller Academy, um, I specifically, we, we focused the whole session on perfectionism and the difficulty of perfectionism and the problems with self-criticism, how authors are, we're our biggest own self-critics and we get in the way of our own work. And Mm. I pulled up a brilliant couple of minute video of Stephen King being interviewed about how he, uh, his first novel and the novel that broke him basically in a good way, um, the novel (laughs) that made his first breakthrough was, was fished out of his waste paper basket by his wife. And it was the manuscript to carry, which he threw away. Mm. He didn't like it. And it was incredible showing all of the Academy members this video whilst we were talking about, oh, I don't think my novel's any good. I don't think it's good enough. I don't think I'm a good enough writer. I'm thinking of quitting um, the manuscript. And then seeing Stephen King talking about the very same thing they were all experiencing. And I was saying, see, you know, everybody who you look at and you maybe idolize or say, wow, if only one day I could be like him. They've all been through the same struggles that everyone is experiencing today, wherever they're at in the journey. So, so yeah, it's a lot but of can you stuff. Imagine, can you imagine if Tabitha King didn't pull that 
manuscript. Well, that's what I said in the coaching. I said, you know, what would he be like? Stephen King would probably be a grave digger or a retired grave digger now, but like (laughs) done something completely different and the world would not have had his books. And every bookshop in the world would be slightly different because they wouldn't have that entire shelf or section (laughs) section on Stephen King. And I'd be top of the search engine thing on Amazon. (laughs) In a different Uh, universe, Mark, you could have been. The Holly King could be the thing. Well, maybe the Holly King will be the book that, that... has that kind of effect you know because but maybe i mean the thing is you you if just don't would i be the writer i am today without stephen king i mean you know through my teens he was a massive influence it's like that film yesterday where uh there there are no beatles songs and the guy starts playing beatles back to realities um yeah that one yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. no 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 no, no, we're jesting we're jesting but uh, i mean the premise doesn't hold up but uh (laughs) but it's that thing you know because they've got they've got musicians featured in that but and i know there are musicians that who wouldn't be musicians unless they'd heard the beatles i mean Absolutely. and how many people mark how many people listen to this podcast right now can ask exactly the same question because i think stephen king had such a huge influence oh massive so, i mean again it was the cujo was the first kind of you know proper thriller slash horror that i read and um and i went on a five six year binge everything yeah. that he wrote everything yeah, yeah. It was, was the biggest author I read as a kid. So amazing stuff. But there's a lot going on. I'm super excited <laughs> for that. We'll have to see how that all goes. If you, uh, I'm going to say this because you won't, Mark, because you're too blooming humble. But um, go and buy Mark's book. Go and go and but go and support Mark. And and um, you know, if you're going to buy Stephen King's book as well, great. You know, go get both of them. But um, I want to see what happens. I want to see if there's a little a little kind of like uptick in the uh, in the orders for that one well it's um it should it's not for pre-order in the states quite yet it will be available in the okay. states but because i'm self-publishing i'm not putting it out quite yet uh so keep an eye out for that you can order it direct from me i'll put a link in the show notes you can uh, get a paperback excellent. that i'll sign and dedicate and do all that lovely stuff so yeah um i gotta say mark as well thank you to everyone um listeners BXT members, Academy members who are like egging me on with this nonfiction project. Yeah, how's it going? How's it going? Yeah, good. I keep getting messages and the messages are simply go for it. That's too, oh, I don't know if it's like good. somebody's, they've decided that's a good one. But um, it's, it's actually really, I mean, it's wonderfully encouraging to have people like pushing you and say, come on, do this, make yeah. it happen. So um, yeah, it's been another, another, I'm still in the notebook phase. Right. I'm procrastinating, Mark, but you know what? I am, I I do think there's a value, especially in, if you're writing nonfiction. You can't. It's harder to pants nonfiction. I think. I think I'm plotting, plotting a plotting a fiction book, uh, pantsing a fiction book. You can you can leave a lot of space. But I think, you know, if you think about how nonfiction works, you have to usually, um, you know, you, you you put a book proposal to a publisher before you've mm. written the book, and it's yeah, you and you've got to literally thing, yeah. show them the whole, yeah. you know, all the yeah, chapter headings and That's what true. you're going to be writing about. So, it's it's a it's a bit of a different approach but I am enjoying it and I'm looking forward to sharing the kind of process with people and, and, and setting challenges. Are you still, are you still world building? You talked about world building a couple of weeks ago in that nonfiction I'm, space. I am, but what I'm doing is I'm world building the series. So I'm not right. world building the book. I'm actually, I have, this is, this is my way of getting. So if, if you're going through this challenge, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, where you have too many ideas, it might be too many ideas in your novel, or it might be too many th- book non-fiction books you want to write i'm going through this idea of world building where i'm i've chucked every single thing i wanted to write about onto like the table 
And then I started looking at like, how do I pick one thing? Or is there some kind of connection between all of these things? And what's happened is the more I looked into it, the more I've seen a, what, what first was a disparate connection. And I'm like, no, there's a whole flow happening. This is stage one stage. And it literally seven stages and each one potentially, he says, this is crazy, but potentially could be a book. But there's, there's an overriding story arc across the whole series. So I've drawn, drawn a lot from everything that we've learned about from authors thinking about, you know, that bigger picture of, of the story. And, and it is very much a, a chronological progression that you go through these stages. And by the time you get to the seventh book, it's like friggin' honestly, like, I, I don't know what's going to come out of that one, but it's, it's really big, big stuff, really deep and big Good. stuff. So I'm looking forward to kind of, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you explained that so well, because a couple of people have asked me about world building in nonfiction uh, on social media. And what's Mr. D doing? And I'm like, I haven't got a clue. No, so, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. I'm probably making it up as I go along folks, but one day I might document the process for everyone. If it works. No, it's good. Well explained. Remember, well explained. It's uh, it's all in experiment folks, right? Brilliant mm -hmm. stuff. Well, let's talking of, I mean, world building and all kinds of fun things. Let's, let's find out who's today's special guest. Oh, this is this uh, really, really good interview, actually. Jeremy Zahl is the author of the Common Trilogy from Golance, which includes Stormblood, Blind Space, and Wolfskin. He's the author of over 50 science fiction short stories. We're going to be talking about short stories. We'll get into that. He's been translated into six languages. He was the editor uh, for the Hugo-winning Starship Sofa until 2020. He now lives in Sydney, Australia with his family. He has a new novella, Scream in Blue, set in the same world of the common. And he's also one of a number of authors who are speaking out about their mental health and how it can be affected by the roller coaster of being published. So we discuss writing action scenes, breaking his readers, and the reality of writer burnout. Brilliant. So let's listen to Mark chatting with the fascinating Jeremy Zal. Jeremy Zal, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? Very good, sir. How are you? I'm tickety-boo. Thank you for asking. Uh, we were talking just before the recording. We last saw each other at Worldcon in Dublin, which pre-pandemic feels like a lifetime ago. So, uh, really how, yeah. How was how was your, was that your first Worldcon or have you had you been to others before that? My debut Worldcon was Worldcon in Finland in 2017. Um, oh, wow. I had, uh, I had an agent back then. Uh, John Jarrell was my agent and I... Uh, had him and so but I didn't have a book deal yet and so I was relatively unknown although some people did know me for my short fiction my editing uh but uh Finland Worldcon was also my set first con ever right. uh, which was a huge amount of fun but uh Dublin was was really cool as well they're kind of bewildering aren't they 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 can be a bit much i think but it is a very welcoming community and it's a it's a great well i mean we're going to talk about this in a minute you you are someone who has embedded yourself in the world of publishing in the world of science fiction but let's talk about the new and exciting thing because you've got a new novella scream in blue which is a, a standalone novel novel novella no, novelette uh set in the world of the common which is your series that started with stormblood and blind space Tell us about Screaming Blue. Well, it's um, uh, it's it tells the story of well to start off to to have a solid comparison. I need to explain what Stormblood is, and Stormblood mm. is basically set in a world where uh, far future. This is a far future space opera where the, the DNA of an extinct alien race is used as a drug that makes people get addicted to adrenaline and aggression permanently. Once it's in your system, it cannot get out. 
Uh, and so the main character is trying to stop this drug from going on the market and he's trying to stop his brother from, from uh, sabotaging the market and all these all very complicated emotional beats that get along with, uh, they're involved with it. This story tells uh, this story tells a tale from the complete opposite perspective. It's telling this tale from a uh, perspective of the drug de- drug mules, I would say, or storm dealing mules, basically, who transport this drug called Stormtech throughout uh, throughout the future city. And it's set in London because uh, the anthology that I was asked to write it for was uh, all the stories had to be centered around London as a theme right. in some way. And so I decided to you know set the story on Earth because the common trilogy novels they all are set in predominantly set on a hollowed out asteroid that's got all these about hundreds and hundreds of different floors um hollowed out as levels where all these different floors exist and all these different cultures exist but i wanted to try and see what earth looked like and so i also wanted to kind of explore what it looked like the drug industry looked like from the opposite perspective of someone actually doing the drugs instead of being the one trying to stop it uh, and so it follows Sola and her two uh, friends as they basically navigate the labyrinth Escher-like world of the far future <laughs> drug industry and uh, all the gangs and violence and uh, underground cults and guilt that comes from dealing with such a drug in such a uh, far future world. This fascinates me because you've got this incredible universe that you're working in, the the, the universe of the of the common and these ideas, you said it was inspired by an anthology and they said, can you set the story in London? But was there always a part of you when you're creating these worlds and these, these epic stories and folks, these books are brilliantly epic. When you're creating them, is there a part of you thinking, oh, I'd love to explore around the corner there. I'd love to see what's going on over there, but I can't. I've got to focus on my main story here, but one day I'm going to go, go over and check that out. Is that what inspires little standalone stories like this? Absolutely. Um, I think it's always fun to play around in different parts of the sandbox. Um, one author I admire who does this incredibly well is Alistair Reynolds. He's got the Revelation mm. Space universe, but he's got myriad of different types of stories and characters and situations that are going on throughout this um, galaxy. Although his world is fairly consistent in tone, uh, you still have all these types of various stories and uh and storylines that are happening all these really cool little events that play out in different ways uh especially when they all alternate perspectives uh and so there's a faction in blind space that are created they're called the um called eclipse and they basically are nomad nomadic space warriors basically Mm -hmm. that have asserted them uh filled their bodies with machines and have a very sort of basically a mashup of the uh uh basically a sort of faction that you would find in the revelation space universe and also the band of brothers of brother, right. brother sorry the brotherhood without banners from the song of ice and fire world right, they right, have this right. sort of uh mythos about them in the sense of honor and loyalty but also have uh you know com- basically a combined have consist of however many alien species you like and also have different b- parts of the bodies replaced with machines and respirators and all these other really cool weird tech uh, and so I created them because I wanted to, in the future, explore some stories and explore some worlds and little events from their perspective and tell uh, different stories from another perspective and see what's going on in their part of the world and what it's like to look through the uh, space opera universe through the eyes of 
a nomad or a traveling alien or some sort of uh, or someone on a spaceship because the, these novels are pretty much grounded very much in Vakov as a first person narrator and it's very much concerned with his storyline and what's going on in his head and his emotions but because I have this other faction I can just go around and play with something completely different and that's incredibly refreshing mm. especially when I've been writing these books for the past uh, six years and I do love them. I love Vakov as a main character, but sometimes it is really good to get a breath of fresh air. Oh, no question. No question. And this is also, it works so well for someone who's new to your work because if they've looked at it and thought, oh, I might want to give that a, this is a great taster because you can sort of dip a toe in and look at the universe through a completely different perspective. And it's kind of like a two way mirror. They can go, oh, I want to see more of that and go over there and check it out. So do check out Screaming Blue. One thing you get a ton of praise for is writing action uh and these books are full of action uh tell us tell us have you got any good tips for writing action particularly in a kind of science fiction uh, arena uh it's all about perspective it's all about being there in the moment i actually find that the best people who write action scenes are not science fiction authors i think driver crumbies are the best people working in the business who writes action because it's all about perspective it's all about um the surprise of visceralness to see the intimacy of it, you know, what it's like to to grapple with someone spinning around, have blood, sweat, and teeth going everywhere, someone else's face <laughs> in your face, teeth clenched, eyes crushed up in a killing rage. You swing your hammer, you swing your, you're about to swing your hammer, but then if the end comes off, you end up smacking him on the head with the middle. <laughs> and, but that's the the weirdness and the visceralness and the surprise of, of a good action scene. And the other person mm-hmm. that I like who does action really well is, Pierce Brown of the Red Rising series, uh, because oh, he goes from 10 to 100 in no time <laughs> at all. Like literally one chapter can be, you know, anything can be happening. The next, they're literally being spat out of tubes, streaming down to a planet for a uh, or- orbital invasion uh, in all these, wrapped in all these mech suits and as gunfires streaming up towards them. Uh, and so again, he never breaks character it's always about what it's like being in the moment having that intensity that fear pounding in your throat that sense of feralness and visceralness um there's one battle sequence in particular in stormblood that i was inspired heavily by um battle of the bastards from game of thrones season six yeah yeah where you know it's almost like you're almost the camera feels like well not really the camera but you're strapped in the up behind the eyes of Akov as your or the Jon Snow in that case is you're sliding between this feral visceral battle and you only see blurs you only see mm. uh suggestions of what's going on around him but you get a sense of what's going on because you're locked into that, that perspective and it never loses uh track although mm. it, and that's a huge amount of praise given the amount of crazy stuff that's going on in that battle uh and I try to do the same here where you get a suggestion of what's going on in the Iraq uh, around Vakov as he's carving his way through all these soldiers, but it is primarily about him, what's going on through his eyes, about being in the battle in that very moment, what it's like to feel, you know, sparks, you know, seeing a sword come slashing towards you and you he holds up his blade and sparks were spraying in his face and then he tries to slash at someone but slips in the mud and the blade goes whistling over his head, then his muscles on all autopilot basically he goes and stabs the other guy it's all about like what it feels like to be there in that moment and uh because i, like I think I'm, that I feel like, like i'm there jeremy i feel like i'm there it's just like live writing it's just 
Sorry, interrupted. Carry on. Charging someone. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, yeah. it's all, well, it's all about immersion for me. It's all about character, and I approach mm-hmm. action scenes the way I approach anything, any other scene, and that's about it's character, character, character. What does it feel like? What does the person get? What does the character get out of this? How are they changed by the end? And how can I write it as in, intimately and as with as much visceralness and great as greater impact as possible? That's fantastic. And look, this is a series. It's got drug harvesting. It's got mind-blowing cyberpunk, space opera, explosive action. But at the heart of this is a platonic love story. I mean, this is this is one of the things you've got a lot of praise for. Tell us, tell us the heart of this story as well, this series. Uh, well, it concerns two characters, Vakov and Artyom. Uh, their brothers grew up on a backwater planet uh, with an abusive father physically abusive father and as soon as he could Vakov left for a war to get away from this planet because it was his only escape went to war left his younger brother behind got this toxic drug pumped into his bloodstream uh made a huge only was only able to survive this war because of the relationships that he carved out uh with the other soldiers there they became his brothers in a sense his brothers that he chose uh and so when he came home from this war, his own brother doesn't want to borrow of him. Uh, but then he finds out that his soldier brothers are being killed off one by one, being overdosed, and the prime suspect is his younger brother. And so it becomes a choice, a uh, struggle between the his actual blood family and the family that he carved out for himself, because him and his brother had a very good relationship growing up. And they leaned on each other to survive, and they went through a lot of hardships and survived those hardships because of uh the relationship they had and now he's got to face uh he's got to face tracking this his brother down and finding out what's going on and because his brother is involved in killing his his other brothers uh and so it's it's very much concerned with the sort of relationships that change and evolve over time and what it can do to a person uh this time and distance and so i think i really much wanted to explore brotherhood in that sense you know what it feels like to be have that relationship with someone and yet feel betrayed and yet still have part of you longs for them, part of you still trusts in them, part of you still wants that relationship back, even though it's painful in so many ways. Uh, and I want to explore the different facets of that, you know, brotherhood, loyalty, honor, uh, familiar relationships, pl- platonic love. And as you said, it is a love story uh, between two brothers and it's very much concerns um them and their decisions that they make and the consequences of those decisions and their relationship uh ebbs and flows over the course of the story uh especially in book three that i'm writing now which i think is them has the most interesting dynamic out of all of them mm-hmm. uh it's uh, you know i don't i try to keep each book uh i try to evolve relationships because i think that that's it to keep it interesting and because honestly all of us in our day-to-day lives as we go grow older and have experienced our relationships with different people change and evolve and we grow apart or we grow further and we adapt and that sort of things. And that's the sort of experience I'd like to, to bring to my novels as well, mm. especially because in the first book without, this isn't really getting into too many spoilers, but in the first book, they were estranged in the second book, they're growing together again and gradually finding, finding a way back to each other. And then in the third book, which I will not spoil. It's the has the most, as I, as I said, interesting dynamic yet, and it's mm-hmm. about fully exploring what happens now. They're at their capacity. They're at they've reached what they think is the peak. Where do they go from there, and how do things continue to evolve and change uh, as they 
deal with this madness that's infected the asteroid. Right. Uh, and because, you know, th- even though they they maybe have a good relationship at, at in the start of book three, that's not going to, that may not stay that way forever. And things change and things evolve. And I wanted to explore that, uh, that pain. Like if this is going to sound really, really cruel, but I actually want to break the reader. You know, I actually do want to cause the reader pain. That's our job, uh, isn't it? Isn't that our job? Our job. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not getting paid enough for this, um, but it is my job. Uh, I actually do want to, uh, like, I make, I do want to make the reader ache so they can. F- and I've had a lot of people tell me sometimes, like, I've had people come up, not actually approach me in person, but people have told me that they've cried, like, in public mm. reading my books because of the, they've been so moved emotionally. Uh, and I've told them your tears are delicious. Can I just have them? <laughs> put them in a cocktail glass so I can drink them? Uh, not, not really. But it is incredibly moving to be told that. But that is exactly yes. what I'm after. I'm actually trying to break the reader and make them run the gumlet of a uh, gumlet of emotions. Yeah, uh, they see the how these brothers lived and survived and the hardships that they endured. But I also want to put them back together. You know, this isn't a depressing bleak you know uber grim dark book where everyone just gets slaughtered in the end and this is nothing but wanton misery i you know i do want to be able to have a balance and i think that being able to show the brokenness and the forlornness and the melancholy but also having the the hope and the relationships being built up and being able to see people change and evolve that's part of the process as well and that's very much what i'm trying to show Fantastic stuff. Let, let's go back. Let's go back because I read somewhere that when you mentioned Game of Thrones already, yeah, I read somewhere that when you were 17, you were inspired by a song on Ice and Fire and you wrote, and I'm quoting you here, 600 pages of nonsense, which we love. We we love hearing about those early novels that, that, <laughs> no, one's ever, that's, that no one's ever going to read. So tell us about this 600 pages of nonsense when you were 17 and, and, uh, and that first writing experience. Uh, no, no, I'm not describing it. I buried <laughs> in a concrete bunker. No one is ever reading it. It was complete ripoff of George R. R. Martin's style and approach. Just happened to be set in the sci-fi world, and because I was playing Halo at the time, so you know, I threw in a bunch of influences from Halo as well. Because why the hell not? Uh, not? It was great to do in my summer holidays when I finished high school. Uh, but and it taught me a lot about the writing process. Well, actually, not really, because I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. Uh, yes, but, but that's, I mean, that first novel is how we learn, isn't it? That's that, those are the big lessons. But I mean, let's, let's, I mean, at 18, you sold your first short story. And I think you've written something like over 50 short stories since. And over time, you've embedded yourself in the world of publishing with short fiction. Tell us about selling that first story, what that felt like, and, and your journey to uh, Stormblood. Sure. Yeah. I, don't remember exactly um, which story it was because I think when I sold it and when they came out chronologically is a little bit different. But I will talk about the most the story that had the most impact, uh, which is a story that I first sold to Nature. It's the first pro story that I sold in the industry. We call it pro. It, the market is pays more than six cents a word. This is Nature magazine. It's science journals, so they pay a lot more than six cents a word. Right. Uh, but I remember getting that email first thing in the morning. And uh, not believing my eyes that I actually sold a story to a <laughs> pro magazine and it was going to be published by Pan Macmillan. 
uh, basically, and I was absolutely ecstatic. And I'd had one or two stories placed in token magazines and token markets, but they were getting no readership. But mm. this was a, another thing entirely, and I was incredibly overjoyed. And it, it actually told me, you know, I can do it. You know, I actually can. I've cracked the code. You know, it's not about syntax and symbolism. It's about black ink on white paper and <laughs> sitting down in a chair and working your ass off and learning the craft and getting better and sending your stuff out. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, I continued to write and submit short fiction. And I've had quite a few short stories published all over the place. Um, I've also had, I think, translated into nine languages. I think I've just had the ninth one just come out in a French magazine, Good Galaxy, SF Galaxies. Wow. And I've had all picked up by Sci-Fi SF World, which is a magazine uh, in China. Uh, and they have a readership over one mil- of over 1 million copies, uh, circulation of 1 million, yeah. Uh, I've had four stories translated by them over the years. And so that was pretty good. But to be on, like, I think you do need too much credit. I actually don't really think I've embedded myself in the world of short fiction, I never, I've never really sold a story to any of the big, what you would consider the big, big marks like Asimov's or Clark's World or anything like that. And there's a reason for that. It's because I actually do not really like short fiction in general. I'm not, it's not my natural form style. Well, it wasn't so much, so, it was just embedding yourself in the industry. I mean, we were to, you were talking at the beginning about going all the way, because you're in Australia, you went all the way to Finland for a world con, you went all the way to Dublin, you're traveling halfway across the world and you are you were determined to make this happen uh, i saw this in an interview from 2014 uh, i'm going to quote you here again and you said i've nearly finished a novel of mine an editor for one of the big five has already shown interest which is enthralling we met at a convention we exchanged details i kept the business card on my desk while i write and it really helps me out i don't know if it'll go anywhere but i'm just praying that it will and if it doesn't i'll write another and another and another until i strike oil just to make sure to be there to buy them when it happens. So this business card, this kind of token, this little totem of hope, tell us about that. Tell us, and what did it lead to? Absolutely nothing, because the, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, this card was uh, from a editor at Harper Voyager Australia, mm-hmm. uh, and I just cornered her after a panel and breathlessly pitched my uh, YA slash adult crossover novel to her and she gave me her business card uh, and then I did a little talking to other authors and I realised that the Harper Voyager imprint in Australia A, does not pay advances B, is mm. basically a dusty outpost for the chief Voyager imprint and C, is you get little to no attention if you do submit to them and even if you do they mostly drop you after your initial books are done and every single author I know who's gotten a book deal with Voyager Australia has dropped, has been dropped almost regardless of sales, uh, you know, and so, you know, being with Voyager Australia does not mean you're going to be with Voyager UK or US. Right. So right, you're right. Australia only and, you know, Australia's population and readership compared to the America is it's not even worth mentioning uh, the, the comparison. Uh, but I was that desperate that I would have taken anything, but, Although I am a pe- person who is naturally impatient, uh, the one I can give myself credit for being patient enough to write a novel that was actually good enough. Because I think if I submitted some of my other novels, they, they could have very well have been picked up uh, by this editor. And although she's you know left the company years ago, 
and they could have been picked up and published by would have been a rush job, a hack job, and I would have blown my chance at really uh, landing, doing a good serious land as a debut author. Mm. Uh, and so I did wait until I wrote a novel. Uh, in uh, I think it was after I finished university. I in 2016 I was you know thinking considering do I want to enter the workforce? Why do I work part or do I want to work part time as a construction laborer? Uh, with my father who runs right. a business and do I want to take another crack at writing a novel? And I did. And I wrote a novel in three months, three months. I wrote a thousand words every day after work. Uh, I said, spent a few months tidying it up. Um, it, when I did tidy it up, I sent, sent it out to a bunch of agents. Between that time, I wrote Stormblood. Uh, and about six months later, I sent John Gerald approached me to say, yes, I want to represent you for this previous novel. Uh, and so that was, you know, a very wise decision not entering the workforce uh, full time. <laughs> it, the novel obviously didn't go anywhere, and I'm glad it didn't because it wasn't quite there yet. And I think that it was a, uh, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a, ju a juvenile attempt at science fiction. I don't really think it had anything to say the way right. Stormblood does, and I don't really think it had the the punch that Stormblood has. And I think that Stormblood definitely. As is a much better representation of me as an author and my voice and my style because the previous novel was written in third person because I thought, well, you know, third person is kind of what people want and mm -hmm. I wasn't really confident enough to do first person. Uh, and so, and the previous novel was very plot driven, whereas Stormblood is very character driven and very voice driven and is in first person, which is much more my thing. And I wrote right. it in a, you know, no pun intended, I wrote it in a storm. It just flew off the page. Uh, and I was delighted with what was coming out, coming out of me. And I can't say I've ever even, I've ever had that, uh, same experience with any novel before or since. Um, but, and so I'm very, very grateful and glad that Stormblood ended up being the one that got people's attention and became my debut. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about, cause that kind of segues onto, uh, a, a tweet that you did. Now we're recording this in April, and you put a tweet out at the beginning of March, a, a sort of a Twitter thread out in the beginning of March, about something that I think not nearly enough authors talk about, which is the the reality of publishing. You know, you have put your heart and your soul into Stormblood. You spend three years working on the sequel, Blind Space. You put your heart and soul into that, and for whatever reason. I mean, uh, Stormblood did very well, but Blind Space, you said in your, your Twitter thread, there was a big drop-off, didn't work as well. And you, like many authors who, I mean, don't talk about this, although we're starting to see this conversation. There was an article in the bookseller yesterday uh, about uh, disillusionment among authors and the publishing process. So let's 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 talk about that, that Twitter thread, what prompted that, and how things have changed since then and how you're feeling since then. Because um, just to give this some context, folks, there was a survey conducted by the bookseller and the results were announced this week. 54% of authors found the process of publishing their debut book negatively affected their mental health, while just 22% described it as a positive experience overall. And we have a lot of expectations about the publishing industry. We tend to only hear about that 1% who get the big advances and the book tours and the movie deals and all that kind of stuff. So going into publishing, what were your expectations about what would happen with Stormblood? And were you thinking about book two and three beyond that? Uh, first, I just want to 
circle back really quickly. So it's only 40, 54%, really? Like that seems like a very low number. (laughs) Very low number. I think they only asked like 120 authors, if if that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so which explains the numbers, to be honest. Mm. Um, but yeah, look, I actually don't think I was as dis- I was as starry-eyed and doe-eyed and as some other auth- some authors may have been because yeah. I spoken I had spoken to a lot of authors and I'd worked as an editor, uh, and so I knew what the realities were, and I knew that the majority of books, you know, do not earn out, and I knew the majority of books don't sell well, and that you. You know, even if you do get picked up, you can get dropped if your sales can get dropped if an axed if they uh, don't perform and that your career can be over and dead in the water. And if you don't have a good uh, support network, you you can be screwed, all these, all these other things. Uh, and so I didn't know that going in. Uh, and But I, I told myself, you know, even when I was writing the, writing the books, like I knew this could happen, but I mm-hmm. couldn't not write. Uh, and so... Yes. But so I kept at it anyway, and I think that gen- generally Stormblood did well. Um, I like obviously, as we were saying be- uh, before, it came out at the peak of COVID. Yes. It came out on the same day as I think Blackout Day when the race rights were happening in America, right. uh, and so that was a double whammy. And so that was tremendous fun. I mean, obviously there are more important things happening around the world, but that it yeah was not helpful uh, in terms of the sales of this book. Uh, and you know the fact that I think my arcs got cancelled, uh, publicity tours got cancelled. Um, you know a lot of things like that happened. You know I was supposed to be overseas, like Worldcon in New Zealand got cancelled, and that yeah. would have been where it would have been launched. The Lance tied in the release of book one for a convention now called Supernova, which is the biggest convention in Australia, and it's one of the only conventions that I know of that pairs authors and actors, the big stars together. And I've done big supernovas since, and you literally in the same green room as people like uh, uh, Carl Urban and Tamora Morrison or right, Boba Fett and right, people right, like yeah. that, which yeah. is tremendous fun, by the way. But um, <laughs> but the point is that people who go there to see people like Billy Butcher do end up passing the author table and buying books. And I've sold very well at those conventions. Yeah. But while I was supposed to be there for the launch of Stormblood and they Hachette would have likely have done some really nice event because I've done it for other authors there. But that all got canned. All of it got axed. And yeah. And so I am actually amazed that the book did as well as it has, like especially in trade paperback. It's been quite like quite strong, and that's the words of my agent, not me. And John Gerald, my agent, he will never tell me anything, shower words of praise that he doesn't need to. Nice. So, in, in the sense that I mean that he will, he will always, he tries to be positive, but he will, will always be honest. And so, when Absolutely. he says quite strong, it's quite strong. Yeah, John. John's uh, been on the podcast. He's one of the good guys. We love John. Yeah, John's great. Very good man. Uh, yeah, he keeps me on the straight and narrow. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's, it, it, it was a bit of an insight into, you know, just how many things can screw up a book launch. And when you have all those things together happening at once, it can screw up a book launch even more. Uh, and so I am actually surprised that Stormblood did well, uh, but Blind Space, for whatever reason, did not get the same impact. And, you know, let's not, before I want to confuse anyone, Stormblood ne- was not never a bestseller. It doesn't have a U.S deal because my any potential US deal got canned because of COVID. And I had know that for a fact because editors have told told us were tr- our wallets have tightened 
we can't yes. look at this right now. Uh, and so I could have had a US publisher and that the advance that they paid me could very well have made my book earn out. So I could have been raking in nonstop profits for every sale. I don't know. That may not have happened, but it could have. But yeah. uh, it's not happened. Uh, and so there's been a lot of things that have messed with the book's success. And it's definitely not a huge success. The sales are good. Uh, not not amazing, not stellar. Um, but it's been not too bad, especially for someone like me who is Australian, who is a debut author, who's writing science fiction, um, not fantasy, because fantasy is 75% of the market. Mm. So I think that it hasn't done too badly. But the second book, for whatever reason, didn't get the same traction. It came out in uh, the very tail end of COVID, which didn't help either. No, uh, no. It came out at the end of the year, and there were a lot of screw-ups down the track for for various reasons with launches and delayed releases and that sort of thing. And that didn't help either. No. And uh, there's only so much you can be on Twitter for. And as I said in that uh, in that tweet uh, tweet thread that um, sometimes it just feels like you're just screaming into a void and there's only so many times you can scream, buy my book, promote me, read my stuff, yeah. give me reviews on Amazon. And it feels exhausting, especially when you feel like you're not getting that support either from the community or the publisher. And, you know, I'm talking in general terms because both have been very, very good at times, uh, but it can feel exhausting. And yeah. especially when uh, you kind of, we do this thing to ourselves where we have this sort of reward system in our head. And if we don't get this reward, if we put in a certain amount of X amount of effort, and if we don't see Y results, it feels like X effort is worthless and we are worthless and this is terrible. When that is not true because we may have done something amazing but because we haven't reaped that reward, reward that is almost completely out of our control, then it can have a huge impact, I think, yeah. on uh, on us both men- mentally and creatively and things like that. What was the what was the reaction to that Twitter thread? Uh, very good, actually. I was completely surprised and mm. by just how well the community responded, and I got. Uh, people from all over the world. I think it got something like eighty thousand views. Wow! Okay. The, book up, the book went up. Was the book was number one on the bestseller list in ebook in ebook in the UK, Amazon UK, uh, and book uh, yes, Blind Space that is. So mm-hmm. not even just the first book, the second book was <laughs> was on the bestseller list, and Stormblood went up to eighteen or something like or sixteen or something like that. So the second book was selling more than the first, right? Uh, I, writing into me all over the world. Like I think people like um, Max Gladstone liked the tweet. And so that brought a huge amount of traction to it and had some guy who worked, I think for Dropbox as a community manager, basically quote tweeted me and said, support new authors by the books I just did. And in his <laughs> tweets, you had a bunch of guys who worked for Microsoft and Sony and all these other tech companies saying, yep, yeah, I've done the same. Yep. Yeah, I'm going to do that. And I was just I'm flabbergasted at the, support that I got. And it's not even just people retweeting. It's actually voting with a wallet, spitting their hard-earned cash on someone that they've never heard of uh, before and supporting me in that sense. And I was incredibly humbled and incredibly grateful. Like I I was just riding, I was walking on sunshine for the rest of the day. Uh, like I just, yeah, like it was, it was very, very gratifying. And not just because, you know, well, I get more, I was had enough money to buy the yacht. I didn't no, have enough no. to buy it. I still don't have enough to play, but, um, but just because you know that outpouring of support 
you know, again, it, the community can seem very scattered and uh, in concrete and all over the place and ill-focused. But when it comes to the crunch, if someone does say, guys, I need help, seriously, people can and will respond. Yeah. Uh, and it was just very, very gratifying to see that people care uh, because, yeah. So has that, how has that changed your your attitude? How has that changed going forward with the, with book three? Uh, look, it actually told me that I need to spend a lot less time on social media because it's damaging <laughs> for my mental health. Yeah. As I said yeah. uh, just before about that reward effort system, you know, you can put so much effort on into, you know, trying to make something happen and trying to make something count. And if you don't get that tangible reward on screen, you feel like a failure. And that's not the sort of thing I need bouncing around in my head before I sit down to write first thing in the morning. Um, you know, it's just, it's not good. It just eats up all your time. And yeah. there was a time where I was literally sometimes before I even start, I would waste an hour, you know, look, trawling yeah. through some review sites and seeing if I can, you know, any new book bloggers want to read this book and read my book, if there's anyone I can contact. And it's just, it, it's not, it's, it's stop suffocating creatively. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it uses up a completely different part of your brain. It uses up mm -hmm. mental energy in a way that just, is not conducive to producing good fiction. And, you know, it would be really, really nice if all of us authors didn't have to be on social media and we could just write our stories and the publisher would take care of everything. But that's <laughs> not quite the reality that we're facing now because a lot of us don't sell well enough for that. And we do need to, uh, you know, uh, make the, grind the mill, basically, yeah. where that millstone uh, day in, day out and, but it did teach me, you know, there is a time to just shut off social media. And I did get sales figures recently. And I felt, you know, partially thanks to that boost, I felt somewhat confident enough. Okay, I can actually take a step back now. I would have done so anyway, because I think it's just not helpful to the mm -hmm. mental mental health. And I just That's really needed to take a step back, breathe, focus on the book and let things take care of themselves. And if they don't, I can take care of them later because the book isn't going anywhere and the audience isn't going anywhere. Uh, but, you know, and it can be really hard even, you know, seeing other people soaring ahead of you. Um, I'm very good friends with Richard Swan, author of Dresses of Kings. I knew him before he was published. I took him out for drinks the day his book came out and he hit the Sunday Times bestseller list within two weeks. And given that there was a war on literally in Europe at the time, it's quite amazing that it happened that way. Um, and obviously he's got a huge readership and, you know, it can still feel disappointing in a way that you can see other people soaring ahead of you and you're lagging behind and you wonder what the hell did I do wrong uh, and what do they do right? But it's, does, it's not about that. It's just about all these other variables that you have no control over. Absolutely. And uh, it's a sad thing to admit, but ultimately there's, there's very little an author can do to make the book a success or not, because the default is failure for a book, unfortunately. And that failure doesn't have to immediately look like, okay, you know, you're never going to be writing again. Failure can just look like, okay, my expectations weren't met uh, or something along those lines. And well, I mean, so I mean, you can talk about failure and success. It depends what metrics you're measuring that with. I mean, if you want to talk about, exactly. you know, sales, bestsellers, that's one thing, but also the fact that you talked earlier about people have been moved emotionally by your writing. And for me, that is a sign of a successful writer. Of course. It's, um, 
And thank you so much for sharing that. I really, really appreciate it. So you've already mentioned briefly uh, the third book, which I believe is called Wolfskin. Uh, I suspect you can't talk too much about that yet, but it's it's it, you're writing, you're focused on it, it's coming. You said you know you're taking these brothers to the next level. You you're going to torture them, make their lives hell, which we're really looking forward to. Well, that goes without saying, Mark. <laughs> saying. Like you don't you don't go to a Metallica concert, ask them to turn the volume down, do you? <laughs> Well, look, we wish you all the best with that. Uh, folks, look, Stormblood, Blind Space are out there. And, you know, if you want to dip a toe in, grab a copy of Screaming Blue. Get them all. Get this man a yacht. Uh, <laughs> I suspect that's not what you I don't think you really want a yacht. They're really expensive to run. No, um, I, want, I want a gin. <laughs> I want a lot more gin. <laughs> gin. We can sort that. Jeremy, thank you so much for sharing this with us and being so honest about it. I think that very few authors do that. Uh, and I'm glad it was, in the end, a cathartic and positive experience. Mm-hmm. And we, we spoke about this before the recording. At the risk of sounding like a patronising old giffer, you're 27 years old, which I think is the age that I started writing seriously. So you have an incredible career ahead of you. And uh, we wish you all the best and hope to speak to you again soon. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Mark. It was an absolute pleasure. Wow, what a roller coaster. I mean, we talk about the roller coaster of writing. There's so many things to unpack in that interview, isn't there, Mark? And yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I want to dive in and start with um <laughs> I just I just have to go straight there. This this idea of breaking your reader. What was it Jeremy yeah. said? He said, Your tears are delicious. <laughs> it's like <laughs> brilliant. But you know, it's a very interesting approach, isn't it? Because I'm 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 real big one on on focusing on emotion. You know, in writing, if you can, if you can feel emotion when you're writing something, if you feel moved by what you're writing, then you have a really strong indication that that's what it's going to be doing for the reader as well. And I think there's no, there's, there's, there's two wonderful things that every author wants to hear from their writer and that they cried, but they either cried tears of happiness, you know, the, the big kind of, it all comes together at the end, big happy ending or, or, or tears of pain or sorrow because you know, one of the main characters or their favorite character gets knocked off. And I think to, (laughs) right. I think to accomplish that as an author is a kind of next level, isn't it? It really is. I think, I mean, whatever the emotion you can make people gasp, you give people thrills, you can make people laugh. That's one of the hardest ones, making people laugh, making people cry. It it does. I mean, when I hear that from readers, it does give me a a tremendous sense of achievement because I I know what that feels like when I've read a book and bawled my eyes out or laughed or been thrilled on the edge of my seat kind of thing. I know what that's like. So to elicit that reaction from a reader is job done. Thank you very much. You know, the worst thing you can hear is it's all right. That is the worst thing. That's worse than a one-star review. Because uh, if a one-star review, someone hated your book. You elicited hatred from them. So at least that's <laughs> exactly. something. Whereas, you know, that kind of tepid, Got yeah, it's all right. That's the worst. That is the absolute worst. Yeah. So, you know, to, to and, and I'm, I'm increasingly aware of this as I write stuff because I, I will sit there going, yeah, you know, this is going to, this is going to push them over the edge. This is going to make someone gasp. This is, you know, Talking about the Holly King, I don't want no spoilers, but the the last line, I deliberately, you know, I I sit there going, <laughs> you know, because that's just gonna, but I, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get angry emails about that one, you know, because and it's uh, but it's what we do. This is what we do. We you know we we want to give people 
a roller coaster, a journey that's going to thrill them and delight them, and uh, you know, elicit all these responses. And it is, and this is this is probably my uh, I I I get hauled over the coals. Is that a thing uh, for for this sometimes? Because I will say that people respond more to emotion than they do plot. When you get people go, oh, the massive plot hole in so and so, I don't care. I don't care. And I don't care about continuity errors. All yeah. I care is how something makes me feel. Feel, so yeah. When, when you get people going, well, actually, oh. It's a... I went to see Oppenheimer at the weekend, okay? Ah. Uh, Did you see a big question? Did you also do back-to-back with Barbie as well? We're seeing Barbie tomorrow night. Okay, <laughs> You're actually going to go I and just, see it? I, yeah, I yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I, just, I just couldn't do two in the same Barbie day. It just wasn't practical. But uh, I saw Oppenheimer. I, we don't have an IMAX near us, so I sat in the front row of my local view. That's a poor man's IMAX. You sit in the front row. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was transfixed for three hours. It's astonishing performances, these big moral dilemmas, you know, and I was really moved by it, and it was an emotional thing. And now I'm seeing articles like, well, uh, have you seen the massive error in Oppenheimer? And all it is is there are some people waving flags, and they got it's stars and stripes. They got 50 stars instead of 49 because Hawaii wasn't a state until 1950 or whatever. Someone has actually paused... Somehow and it's like, paused the video and counted the stars. You sad little sack. You know, it's like, that's not, I don't care. I yeah. genuinely don't care. All I care is how that movie made me feel about these massive dilemmas that this man and his team had, and the consequences of what they had to live. It's, and I think, you know, uh, Christopher Nolan gets accused of being a cold filmmaker and mm. not being emotional. And actually, I disagree. I think a lot of his films are, and this is his most emotional one of the lot. Wow. I think, you know, so that's I think, what I think I'm you're absolutely for. right. I think, you know, a, when you think about literally a roller coaster, no one, when you get off a roller coaster, you're not complaining about the plot or no. the journey. It, the, no, exactly. the point is, is it's what you felt. It's the drops, it's the fear, it's the highs, it's the lows, it's the anticipation. Of get, yeah. And, and I mean, but, but combine an amazing plot with emotion Bingo. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, really. I mean, if you can yeah, get yeah. both of those, but you're absolutely right. I was watching, talking about completely like, okay, let's go opposite. Let's go Barbie end of Boppenheimer. I yeah. was, I sat down the other day. I was, I was worn out. I thought, I just want to sit and watch some rubbish on TV. And mm. I went on and the original series of Different Strokes was on. Do you remember Different oh Strokes? Oh my God. I know. Yeah. Oh, wow. 19... Is still showing that? 1978, <laughs> right? Do you remember Gary Coleman? I used to watch that yeah, all yeah. the time as a kid. And and it was season one, episode one. I thought the very first episode of Different Strokes, I haven't seen this in years. So I stuck it on. And you, you want to talk about continuity. I mean, it was it was absolutely hilarious just watching it again. But like every, almost every single shot, like they're all sitting in different positions whenever they oh, change. Really? <laughs> it's great. <laughs> and like, we didn't care. We didn't care as kids. Um, but yeah, it's it's absolutely brilliant. But yeah, I, I very much enjoyed watching Gary Coleman's <laughs> debut. How did Oppenheimer strokes? No, that sounds wrong. Um. <laughs> oh. So so tell me for everyone asking the question, like, what's the draw for Barbie for you, Mark? What's what's the what's the? Is it just a curiosity factor, or are you genuinely kind of like going to watch it from a story it's, perspective? It's, it's Greta Gerwig, who's one of our great filmmakers uh, and writers doing barbie that immediately those the clash of those two things is, is that and, like kind of musk and and uh zuckerberg getting in a is it like the most unusual <laughs> thing you can imagine well i just 
I'm just fascinated because she's a brilliant, thoughtful writer and filmmaker. And I've seen the trailer where it's all pink and Barbie says, have you ever thought about death? And I'm like, sold. I'm there. Uh, that's it. Barbie Barbie has an existential crisis. Uh, ticket, sold, please. And funny enough, I went to, because I... Um, I sometimes write in the the Curzon Cinema in Canterbury because I've got a lovely little uh, coffee shop there and I sit and write there sometimes. I was talking to the manager and I was saying, you know, uh, who's winning, Barbie or Oppenheim? And he said, oh, Barbie. Barbie, Barbie is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, Oppenheim has had, yeah. had an amazing opening, but Barbie is, is doing really, really well. And I said, here's the thing, though. Who is it for? Because Barbie movies, you think the target – audience for that is going to be young girls think. who play with Barbie. And he said it's across the board. It and is. it's rated over here. I mean, in the States, I think it's PG-13, but over here it's a 12, which means anyone under 12 has to have an adult with them, ah. which doubles your box office. Uh, so, you know, yeah. so I think I, I haven't seen it myself. I'll report back next week. Okay, I want to hear um, it because I, I haven't yeah. got any intention of seeing it, but I've got to say I might get sucked into it if, if mm. everyone starts saying. But uh, maybe it's a 12 – and maybe it will be true to form. When we talk about Barbie talking about death, but mm. what I want to really know, Mark, and this is what I want you to report back on, is does Barbie lose a leg? Because that would be real <laughs> in in the reality of like every kid's like at least one or two limbs have to disappear during. Yeah, and maybe yeah. that's why it's got a twelve because she actually does lose a limb. I mean, yeah. I joke, or, but so, like, or someone cuts her hair or whatever. Or, some, you know, yeah, cuts her hair or, or puts um, covers her face in, cray, in crayon. Pen on her face. Yeah, yeah. I'll just put some makeup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I bet you there'll be some gags about that's kind of like uh, slack in there for the for the adults. But um, brilliant. Be well, how did we get? How did we get here? Yes. And how do we get um, back? <laughs> how do we, yeah, we were talking to yeah, uh, we were talking about Jeremy, weren't we? We were um, talking about Jeremy. <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. You only come here for the banter, folks. We know you don't really. You just want to talk about Barbie. Um, let's now go to the next next item that we want to talk about, which was, and I love this, six hundred pages of nonsense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we talk about like things readers have said, writers have said. Like, who hasn't written six hundred pages of nonsense? I think it's brilliant. It's a brilliantly freeing way to think about your writing, mm. as to just allow yourself to write with no expectation, and 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 maybe that's what every first draft is in the eye of the writer. It is. It is like you know. 50,000 words, 70,000 words of nonsense, because it's about how do we make sense of nonsense is no sense, right? So how do we make sense of that in the second draft? But I love the fact that he learned so much about the writing process through that, through that journey. Totally. Tell you what, he finished it. Yeah. He got to the end. That's the key, it isn't it? He finished 600 pages of nonsense. Precisely. And you've then got something to what you, you will have learned so much from doing that uh, about beginnings, about middles, about endings, about character arcs, stories, the whole thing, it, you know, and no one needs to see it. You know, it's your dirty laundry. No one else gets to see yeah. it. You know, you could, you don't have to don't feel obliged to get it published or whatever. We've all got I've got so many hundreds of hundreds and thousands of pages of nonsense that I've written that no one's ever going to see. Uh, but that's kind of the bedrock of of who I am as a writer. That's where I started. You know, yeah. we hear a lot of uh, people. I mean, he, he said it was it was kind of a Game of Thrones style, you know, influenced by that. And we've spoken to so many authors who started out writing fan fiction. You know, they, they would write in another universe because they don't necessarily want 
you know, half the battle is coming up with the world and characters and putting that all together. Well, you tell you what, let's write in the Game of Thrones universe. I'm just going to do that and I'm going to write that. I'm going to have fun with it and they're going to learn so much about it. Why not? Why not do it? If you're struggling with your first fantasy novel, why not write something in George R. R. Martin? As long as you don't make any money from it, you're fine. Yeah. You're absolutely fine. But we've heard about writers, you know, even people that are coaching in the academy have talked about that they've, they've rewritten They've written out, I and mean, Chris Will talked about rewriting like a, a chapter from one of his favorite novels. And yeah. and what Jeremy talked about is he said, I wrote in the style of, or I ripped off, you know, mm. and that's, that is absolutely valid. Like try to do that. Try to write in the style of your favorite author. Try and be a Stephen King or a J.K. Rowling or whoever it might be for you so that you can learn about what parts of that come naturally to you and what parts feel unauthentic or or not natural. And that's how you start to shape your voice. It's not, people talk about finding their voice as if you're kind of going off with a backpack and you're going off on this like, you know, hero's journey quest where you're looking around, you're digging, you're chasing rainbows, um, you're searching for that buried treasure. Well, the treasure might not be buried. It might be right on your bookshelf. And all you have to do is you have to like go and grab all your favorite authors and, and try and write in their styles. And you might end up being an aggregation of uh, multiples, which makes your style unique. So it might not be about, you know, discovering your voice. It might be um, learning what your voice is through practice, which is absolutely what the writing process is. So I, I love that. And I, I, I salute Jeremy for doing that. Um, I also just want to say as well, Mark, this again came up in the coaching um, and the Academy on Monday when we talked about people being the most self-critical of anyone in the world about Mm. their own writing. So I just want to put a bit of a massive, massive like neon disclaimer on everything that we're saying (laughs) because, because here's the thing. As a writer, you will be the harshest critic of everything you write. So if you r- think that your work is nonsense or rubbish or low grade, I promise you that that will be its lowest rating in the world, which yeah. means that anyone else <laughs> that reads it won't have quite as an extreme, possibly negative view of it, which means it is actually better than you think it is. And what actually counts is not what you think it is, it's what the reader thinks it is because they're the ones that buy your books ultimately. And that's what comes back to that emotional response. That's what you're trying to, and you have no control over that. You have no, you can do the best you can by presenting them with a story and this weird collection of words that somehow paints a picture in our head or not, yeah. depending on how, you know, how neurotypical you might be. We've heard about people who don't, who don't see it like that, but you know, it's that thing of you're creating, you're eliciting these emotions from people with words, which strikes me as, strangely magical and alchemical and uh, weird, you know? So if you even get the slightest emotion out of someone, you're some kind of strange word wizard. But here's a, here's a, here's a, here's a task for everyone this week. When you sit down to write, write something that might make someone cry tears of laughter or tears of sorrow. Like try it. If you've, because most people, I know it's hard, but the thing is you've got to practice it. In fact, one of the things I found through doing public speaking is I learned the process of eliciting emotion in people when I was telling certain stories in my, in my, you know, speeches and things. And, and it's a, and you, and, and it's like a comedian in a weird way. It's like how a comedian goes out and tries their jokes. And sometimes they, they, you get a laugh and other times you get unexpected laughs and other times people are rolling in the seats, but you have to go out and try it to get the feedback, to know what works and what doesn't. And I think most people, 
who've never had someone cry or laugh with tears at their book is because they've never actually tried it because they don't think they're capable of doing it. That's a really, really right? interesting point. That everyone that is. is. Really, I mean, it, it took me years to... I, I think I first made someone... I got the feedback that I'd made someone cry with The End of Magic. So that was my third book. Yeah. So Robots, that you heard I think, about was, was as well. A, that you heard well, about yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. But usually you I, do hear about those extreme responses. That's the other good thing about getting people's yeah. emotions is yeah. they often, they're then moved to write to you and say, oh my gosh, this was incredibly powerful. Yeah. This, this really moved me. And I've, I've certainly had it on all, on all of the Witches of Woodville books because there is a moment in each of them that I think has a kind of emotional yeah. peak. Um, but it's hard. It took me years to master that. Well, yeah. I've, I've mastered it. I say master it, just manage it, you know. Well, uh, mastering it. I think it's that mm. whole, we keep, ma we're mastering yeah. it for the rest of our lives, aren't we? And we'll never and, quite. And you've, got, you've got to be careful as well because you can't, I think people are suspicious of the kind of cheap emotion. They see through it. It needs to have a truth to it. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the difference between a kind of a, a hallmark card and a and a novel and a novel. You know, the, well, they've the, got you've got to be invested in the character. Mm. The character's like it's like you know a pet totally. dying, right? Mm. You know, some somebody else says, "Oh, it's just a cat." And it's like, no, this was like twenty years. This is our family pet. It was a member of the family. There's got to be there's got to be some kind of depth of character that that connects you. That we 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 cry when we when we uh, when we lose something that's really heartfelt to us so that word heartfelt is linked to emotion mm. and anyway we could dive we could dive deep into this this is come and join the academy folks we talk about this all the time there so <laughs> this is the kind of crazy level of detail we go into but seriously let, let's talk also about very interesting that jeremy was talking about this kind of role um social media mental health but the changing role of the author and the publisher i i was we were talking before the show weren't we about this analogy of how the expectation of the author has changed over the years with the advent of um, social media. You think back to like the you know late eighties, early nineties when there wasn't social media. When you signed a book deal, your job was to write the book and then probably show up at a few book signings, maybe do a few interviews. But it was the job of the publisher to go out and market the book. But nowadays, it's more of a collaboration. Or if yourself published author you'll know that it's you've got everything to do you know you're, you're, you're yeah. sweeping the floor and doing the social media posts as well as writing the book so there's a changing expectation here isn't there and that i think is a lot of pressure on a lot of authors who are having to keep up the social media game as it were to try and uh there's, keep, there's, keep publisher happy there's so much to discuss here and in the extended we're going to talk about selling yourself on social media in a bit more detail aren't we and selling Absolutely. the book on social media we're going to talk yeah. about that in the extended version but I, and I'll, there is a link in the show notes to Jeremy's Twitter thread which is definitely worth reading because it is it's um, it's very common it's, and like I said there was a survey in April of this year 54% of authors found publishing the debut negatively affected their mental health and that's a combination of things it's not just social media it's uh coming into an industry that isn't very good at explaining what it's about it has this you know strange lingo that we still use a black art, isn't it for many people yeah we it? we assume a lot of knowledge what's interesting is this year you're a couple of publishers are making efforts at at beginning 
uh, with sort of introductory courses for other authors and saying, okay, this is what we this is what we mean when we when we send you your edits and you know you hear about authors who get their edits back and don't know what track changes are mm. uh, and don't know how that works and no one's shown them how to do it. Of course, if you sign up to the academy, you'll you know you, you, this stuff is explained to you and I'm here to talk about it because I've been through it many times. But well, we get to you see know, your Scrivener files and layouts, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like and you know, Word docs and things like that. So yeah, I I do I do outline all that stuff, but you know most people don't know it now. The Gen X part of me is going, oh, for goodness sake, if you're going to go into an industry, learn about it. You know, uh, <laughs> there's, there's a part of me that is kind of, oh, honestly, get a grip kind of thing. But also publishing is really bad at this. It is genuinely really, really bad at this. And part of that is because, uh, one, it's been very cliquey. It's a lot of people come from the same backgrounds who will assume, oh, you went to the same schools that I went to, you went to the same universities. And now that we're getting a much more diverse um, author, bunch of authors writing now, they're coming from different backgrounds and they don't have this knowledge necessarily. You know, uh, and, and also it's just publishers are massively understaffed now as well. A lot of the editors just don't have time to hold your hand and take yeah. you through this kind of stuff. Absolutely. So it's interesting. A couple of publishers are making efforts to change this. Let's see if they're still doing it in a year's time, shall we? Um, mm. You know, I've, I've seen them start these things before, and it, it doesn't always, you know, uh, keep going. But um, it is uh, it, it is a bit tough. I think authors, when you're going into an, if I was to suddenly become, you know, change industry, and and if I was to become a lawyer or a barrister or something, I would learn something about the industry before I heard yeah. myself in, into it. You know, exactly. So, we have to take a bit of personal responsibility for this stuff. Yeah. But where do we go for this information? Where do we go? Who do we ask? You know, um, exactly. Well, the thing is, well, <laughs> this is, well, the thing is, that's. I mean, partly it's interesting because when I came into this podcast six years ago, part of my fascination, like, and part of the reason why I thought, oh, it'd be so fun working with Marcus because you worked in the publishing industry, and yeah, from my yeah, perspective, yeah. it was all a, it was all a black art. I didn't. I didn't even know the different types of editing editors yeah. that there were. Yeah. And Most I know a lot don't. of people are listening yeah. to this podcast to learn all that, learn all that because, you know, we even do a course about, you know, the different types of editors so that people can understand that. And I think what's really important here is as a writer, you've got a massive undertaking and, and, a, and a, a, a personal growth that you're going through as a writer, how to be a better writer, how to write the mm. best book you can. And that's obviously a big focus of what we're, we're looking to do. But then outside of that, there's this whole other learning curve about, well, what is this thing called the publishing industry? And even if you're not, and in some ways, if you're going to self-publish, you need to become more knowledgeable about that than someone who's published Absolutely. with a traditional, because you're, yeah. you're having to understand it from, from the nuts and bolts up. And so you've got these two massive things that you've got to like start to learn. And the most important thing is to not get overwhelmed by either of them. I think it's very easy when you stand as an author and you start to kind of like, you open the door, the front door of the house and you kind of look and go, oh my gosh, there's a lot of rooms in here. This is a big house and there's tunnels and there's secret passages and all kinds of things going on. You want to basically take your time and allow yourself, but set the intention right now, if, you, if, you, if you've not been there, that you are gonna really focus on your craft and focus on on your kind of your the mental side of writing like the inner game of writing as i call it and also set an intention that you're going to learn at least the basics of how the publishing industry works yeah. because that's Absolutely. the machine that you're sticking your book into right yeah. you're, you're putting your book into that machine and if you don't understand 
how it works. That brilliant book that you've, you've written might get chewed up and spat out. Mm. And not, nothing to do with whether it's a good book or a bad book. It just never gets a chance to shine within, within that world. Yeah. So I really encourage people just to kind of it, like... I mean, it might, it, might, it might be a case of, you know, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing because people go into bookshops and think they know how the sausage is made. They think, oh, yeah, the writer writes a book, publisher publishes it. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. No, no, it's, it's, it's not. It's not. It's a, it's a whole process. Mm. And you can be chewed up and spat out. And the author who gets a half a million dollar advance and a massive marketing campaign is very different to the author who gets a $5,000 advance and no marketing whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's a, it's a totally different experience. And yeah. Um, it's uh, I've seen both happen, you know, uh, yeah. constantly, and and it's uh, it's a roller coaster, as we it say, is. an emotional roller coaster. It is emotional. Yeah, there you go. I mean, it's, it's the same thing back to front. So yeah. we're going to go deeper into this in the extended. I'm going to talk a bit about this idea that um, people like to buy, but they don't like to be sold to. So if you're struggling to sell your books online. I'm going to go into a bit of the consumer psychology behind the reader, which I think you'll find very, very interesting. Uh, we're also going to talk about the value of writing short stories, um, the milestone of selling your first short story, and uh, delve a little bit into this incredible story that Jeremy told us about Chinese sci-fi world with one million circulation, like the things you just don't realize are out there. Mm -hmm. And Mark's going to give us his number one tips for writing action scenes, which I can't wait to hear. So if you'd like to join us in the extended, it's very simple. You simply sign up to become a patron. It's at pennies per month. Um, or if you're a part of the Academy, you get all of the extended podcasts for free on our very special bestseller Academy app, which you get as part of your membership. So pop along to bestselleracademy.com forward slash, sorry, bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support uh, for the patron and academy.bestsellerexperiment.com for the Academy. Links in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> So, folks, um, thank you very much if you listen to The Extended. And we're going to dive into this week's wins on social media as well, Mark. Just a couple of bits. Uh, it's been a long episode, so we'll, uh, we'll we'll just keep it short and sweet today. But uh, some wonderful stuff. Gavin Ralph, a uh, much-treasured member of the BXP team, uh, who's written Murder on Milverton Square and Poison at Penshaw Hall, which is coming soon. It's coming October 2023. He said, I have to share a win today. Now, Gavin self-publishes and does it really, really well. Amazing covers, brilliant writer. Says, my cosy murder mysteries are coming to ears near you. Uh, recently finalised an audio rights deal with Tantor Media to produce and publish the first two Milverton mysteries as audio books. Uh, so this, and he's done a little graphic and everything. It's, it's terrific. Now, this is this is what we were talking about during the, uh, the extended about authors, you know, taking control of their careers, not relying on publishers to do things, you know. So Gavin's Tantor Media is the real deal. Uh, we used to, you know, when I was at Orion, we deal with them all the time in order to produce audio books. So that is terrific. That's that's going wide. Uh, audiobooks still, you know, growing massively. Huge. So Gavin, huge, huge congratulations on that. I think that's that's massive news. Brilliant. Really, really good news. So huge congrats. And Mark Hood, the legend Mark Hood, 
Now, we've had Mark on the podcast a couple of times, I think. Still got his incredible 200 words a day streak. Uh, he says, um, he says recently on the podcast, there was advice on finding a nice book to put positive things in. So he says, I've got this now. And there's a beautiful picture of this antique wooden box with a wonderful old lock on the cover, uh, on the front of it as well. He says, I've put in printouts of good reviews, comments people have sent me and feedback from submissions. So I have a collection of positive messages to flick through if I need reassuring. Now this was, um, this came from you, didn't it? Mr. It did, yeah. It's a story yeah. of, um, I've, I've created a kind of a, I've got a physical location and also I got a folder on my, uh, you know, whenever we get a lovely email from someone who's enjoyed the podcast, I save it. I I literally kind of, I, I, I create a PDF of it. So it almost makes it kind of like permanent forever. And the story behind uh, a lovely, uh, my mother-in-law is a teacher. She, she said whenever she had a bad day, she'd open up a box of letters that she got from students of the past. And Mm. I think we just need to start doing things like this folks, because you know, everyone has tough days and as much as these things fill us up and they're wonderful in the moment, they have a lasting effect and they remind us of the value that we're creating in other people's lives. And that, folks, strip away everything else. That's why we show up here in the world. That's what we. That's the legacy that we can leave behind. So, yeah, I reckon everyone else should do that. We'll give it a. Uh, we'll give it an official title when I come up with one. But yeah, good for Mark <laughs> for, for getting out the gate and kicking it off. Brilliant stuff. Brilliant. Well, folks. Uh- if you've had a win, no matter how big or small, we want to hear about it. So drop us a line. If you go to bestsellerexperiment.com, there's a contact tab there. We can email us directly. We read all the emails. On social media, on Facebook, we're Bestseller Experiment. On Twitter, Instagram, and threads, we're be- at Bestseller. Is it Instagram? Is it Twitter anymore? Twitter? What's he calling it? X. X. Yeah, <laughs> X. Oh, I'm not doing it. I can't do it. I can't bring myself to say it. Anyway, we are at Bestseller XP. So drop, a, drop us a line there. And if you've enjoyed this, if you've been inspired by Jeremy or any of the authors that we've spoken to, give us a rating, give us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. And please subscribe because that stuff really, really helps. And join the Bestseller Experiment newsletter. Get weekly updates of all of the guests that we've uh, interviewed, things we've learned, things you'll learn as well. So pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the newsletter tab to sign up um, and get a bonus download, Mark. If people yes. still can get that. So yeah, go and I check for, that out. It's still I forget there. about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Um, and also, folks, remember, if you've enjoyed this and you've been inspired by Mark mm-hmm. and I um, and you'd like us to be your coaches, you know, if you're writing your book you need a bit of accountability you want a bit more of that inspiration and we get to know you personally that's a bit we love we get to know about you your book your your story and we get to encourage you through the whole process then pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com and put in your application for the bestseller academy um starting in at the beginning of september so you've got a few more weeks yet get in there brilliant stuff well have a great writing week mark and for everyone out there in podcast land have a wonderful wonderful uh, week writing and it's goodbye from mark one and a goodbye from mark two goodbye